Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we have made the possibly questionable decision to talk <laughs> about love, Christmas, and the legacy of love actually. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss how love actually might help us think about life in the church and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how love actually might help us understand the lectionary passages for the fourth Sunday in Advent, December 20th. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far down the road, I want to introduce our guest and friend, Becca Messman. Becca is the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Herndon, Virginia, writes frequently for the Presbyterian Outlook, among other publications. She's also the guest on this show who provides more puns per minute than any other guest. Becca, we are so happy to have you back here. No pressure on that. Thank you all so much. It is a joy to be here, although I'm wondering about what uh, taste you ascribe to me, since I'm also the guest that was here for that think piece known as Top Gun. So I'm uh, going <laughs> to do a, a, a bit of a niche of, of movies that, that may have lost a little of their shine or chrome over the years, but so glad to be able to be here with you and absolutely skewer something that many people find joy in. <laughs> if, if, if memory serves, I was the one skewering Top Gun and you and Adam were trying to lift up some kind of great value. We'll see if that holds well, today. I, I, I'm going to try it again. I'm going to try right. it again. Well, guess what? When Top Gun 2 comes out, guess who's going to be back on the show? Leave it. Turn and burn, Mav. I am here for it. So the first time that I saw Love Actually, which is Richard Curtis's 2003 Christmas-themed pastiche film intercutting between, I don't know, I lost count, maybe a dozen different interconnected romantic relationships. The first time I saw this thing, I was on an airplane. I'd heard sort of some not terribly unpleasant things about this movie, and I have low standards for entertainment when I'm on an airplane. And so I watched this thing, and it clocked in around an hour 45, and I thought that it was fine for an airplane. I mean, it passed the time that I wanted it to pass, which is like all I'm looking for. The next time I watched it, I don't remember the context, but the movie opened fairly quickly with Martin Freeman and Joanna Page as in their characters, their stand-ins on a pornography shoot. And I didn't recognize those two characters at all <laughs> from the movie that I had seen on the airplane. And the movie went on and I recognized everything else, but whenever these two actors would come back on screen, I would feel like I was watching a movie I hadn't seen before. And because it turned out that that's exactly what had happened, that the airplane cut of this movie had just edited out the two characters who are pornography stand-ins entirely. They just took out a plot. You took out about 20 minutes of screen time from the movie. They, they still show up in the background a few times, but I didn't know that they weren't just 
that they weren't not just extras. I didn't know who Martin Freeman was at that point, so it wouldn't have registered. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit that revisiting this movie yet again, and it has become sort of a weird Christmas classic, I guess. And so I've now seen it a few times, but it strikes me now that Freeman and Page's relationship in this movie may actually be the least objectionable part of the whole thing. So I think I would rather watch the cut of this film that is just them and leave the other hour and 45 minutes of it behind. But that's just me now. And I I wanna hear from you, Becca, and you, Adam, and maybe we can also find some good things to say too. What was it like revisiting Love Actually? And how does it find its way into your Christmas spirit? Oh, Matt. Um, Well, so I remember it it, it for a while it had the same spot in my mind as the song baby it's cold outside where i like it and now i realize it hasn't aged well and there's some things that make me uncomfortable in kind of a me too way uh this time just seeking to be a bit you know un- impartial i made a list so of things that uh, were problematic things that perhaps didn't get enough credit things that are, you know, moments of truth, things that could actually be trolling us, uh, moments of true awkwardness. And, um, you know, the longest list by far was the list of problematic things. Um, And the things that really do give me a bit of Christmas spirit are pop-up concerts and weddings. Um, You know, I think Bill Nye definitely tells the truth um, occasionally. Um, I love the chutzpah of Sam the kid, uh, having just seen him as a grown-up in the Queen's Gambit, to remember his like, passionate run through the airport and you know him writing Rhythm is My Life on the door, like that just was truly enjoyable. Um, I'm glad for the reminder about the intrusive nature of cell phones when poor Laura Lenny just could not turn it off. Um, and and Mr. Bean, <laughs> Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean, slow wrapping things and winking at the camera, saying "tis the work of a moment." Um, that was precious. And honestly, you know, when Hugh Grant, when Hugh Grant danced uh, throughout that that palace of Downing Street. Um, almost like it was this sort of throwback to Tom Cruise in Risky Business. Yeah, totally. I thought, you know, this is like a rebuttal involving actual butts. Like <laughs> they were just dancing and it was sweet and adorable and and it does not get old for me. The rest of it, whoa, I've got some complicated. I mean, yeah, so let's let's time that out. I mean, how, <laughs> how many minutes is that? About 15 minutes of the movie? Oh, of what is what's able to be extracted yeah Ooh, yeah i think we're looking at a a digital short (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it is a monumentally stupid movie um mr bean actually originally conceived as a guardian angel figure in this film (laughs) and as they got trimmed down they had to take that layer out of it so he's supposed to be the guardian angel which sort of works at the wrapping present sequence works a lot better at the he provides a a pick and roll so that sam can blitz through the airport at the security check sequence 
Um, but yeah, there's I mean, there's Rowan Atkinson as Guardian Angel. Comes, it's just what this movie needs. Yeah, well, they needed to cut it out because this movie comes in at a tidy two hours and fifteen minutes, it's long. which is incredible for how little it has to say about the world. <laughs> and it was, I was shocked by that when I went back to visit it last night because I thought I was thinking, okay, well, I've got to watch this movie for the pod, and um, but at least it's not a long one. Because in my memory, how could it possibly be a long movie? I was like, well, at least it's like, you know, I'll have some time after it. It's got to be like an hour, an hour and a half, hour 40. And yes. I turned this thing on and it said 2.15. And I thought, what? <laughs> so awkward. I, I mean, I think it, this movie strains every ounce of credulity that anybody might bring to it. It, <laughs> it, it shows a passing understanding of love, though love is so central to its its title um, and to the framing of the movie. It it shows only a passing understanding of love and it is punctuated by more than a little light harassment and infidelity and full of fat shaming and a lot of sexism. And it's all wrapped up. And this astounded me in watching it. With a framing that invokes 9-11 right. to begin it, I mean, I started to sweat when I heard Hugh Grant talk about that. It is totally bonkers. Um, but I guess, I mean, so the, the way that I've been trying to understand this in my, in, from my vantage in the middle of a pandemic in 2020, where um, I suppose I just don't have time for a lot of the, um, the, the, the sort of the fluff of it all, or the, the sort of, it's, it's, it's inability or uh, uh, to like actually consider the world as it currently operates. It is the perfect Bush era movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is dumb and entertaining if you don't spare a single thought to consider its ideas or its basic plot. <laughs> True. And it has that Dido song in it, which automatically dates this movie for me. And any critical attention to this movie will expose its very hollow core. It is tissue paper that you use in your in, in your Christmas bag. It is a glass Christmas ornament. Um, and I am trying to figure out why it rose to a place where people considered it like a classic Christmas movie that you would have to watch. I, I'm, I'm, I wanna talk about that, but, I, but we, we first need to get to some of the problems of this movie. <laughs> um, so can, can we enumerate some of the issues before then trying to piece together why in the world this rose to some degree of prominence? I mean, I think for me, I, I, there are at least two, and I'll just speak very, very broadly. And I think we've already gestured at them. And I, I, I'm not sure it's worth trying to enumerate the examples of this. But in, 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 in one hand, as it, as you've already hinted, this is this is a horror movie about patriarchy, um, and <laughs> and uh, and. And that shows up in all of these, I mean, sort of notoriously, what, what are the notorious things? The notorious things are um, Alan Rickman kind of having this emotional affair uh, with his wife and giving uh, uh, on his wife and with the, with his secretary, giving the, his wife the Joni Mitchell CD instead of the beautiful jewelry that he bought for the secretary. The other a notorious one is Andrew Lincoln's character um, you know, being in love with his friend's wife and 
like just stalking her with cameras uh, and, and then kind of showing up at the house with the signs doing the Dylan thing. Um, I, but it's much more pervasive than that, right? I mean, it's <clears throat> Alan Rickman's character is um, matchmaking the employees in his office in the first 10 minutes of this movie before we ever <laughs> see him in his own relationship. So there, there's all sorts of stuff uh, that, that just, just feels disgusting. Um, right. the, the other broad one for me is that is, is, and I think this is, I, I do want to get into this at some point, is that this, this is a profoundly unromantic movie about love. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 even if you were able to level out the gender dynamics in the screenplay and reconsider it, what you end up with is uh, a movie where no relationships ever do any work. You know, even a bubblegum romantic comedy, like folk, people meet, they fall in love, then they have some falling out and then they come back together, right? But that falling out never happens here, except in the case of, um, except in the case of Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. But the once, once they have this, once they have this undoing, the movie doesn't know what to do with them anymore. It can't figure out whether to let them go or put them back together. It just leaves them in limbo. There's no way to do in this, in the in the sphere of this movie, any of the work that is actually involved in what sustaining love relationships are, uh, and so it just feels um, icky. Icky, yeah, mm. yeah. Talk about that. I mean, Becca, let's yeah. get the list out. <laughs> okay, problematic things. We're gonna go lightning round here. Starting off by doubting the wisdom of having Brazilian prostitutes at a stag night. Uncle Terrence, who was a pervert, as the first way he greeted one of his staff. Uh, poor uh, James getting cheated so badly by his wife and his brother. Right at the beginning? I mean, he, the boss, yep, counsels her to go for Carl. Uh, when the prime minister says, who do I have to screw around here to get a cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit? And in she comes. Uh, Natalie is called fat the entire time. Chubby girl, thighs, plumpy. Um, and she's, she's a very attractive woman. I don't know what the American, in the world they're talking the American, about. Right. The American president says, did you see those pipes? I mean, mm, that one is a little more current. Um <laughs> The fact that the Portuguese woman takes off, uh, Aurelia takes off her clothes and jumps into the lake to another leering camera eye. Uh, then they have a quick kiss and a car wreck. I mean, that's sort of a metaphor for the whole darn thing. Um, there's the, the crushing idea of boundaries with a mentally ill brother, which honestly, the fact that the love interest says, will that make him any better? Um, brilliant for thinking about family systems, but definitely not Christmas spirit. I mean, it's like true Christmas, but yeah. Um, I mean, the people of color are in very secondary roles. Um, the fact that um, this idea of truth telling uh, continues to come up, uh, usually in a very belittling way where people are just basically told to bugger off. I mean, it is, it asks a lot 
it asks a lot of us to buy into a particular worldview that is very nostalgic uh, for times when doughy middle-aged men had women throwing themselves at them and everybody was like fine with that. And even the tenderest moment at the end when the rock star says, you're the truest thing I've known of love. And we're like, oh, maybe they're gonna mature. Nope, Greta the no, no lines, no last name model shows up with him. Or, but 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 even between like this nice tender really, moment like yeah now let's go objectify women and watch pornography together it, let's get pissed and watch porn you're like oh my gosh you just cannot sit with the oh. you cannot sit with the vulnerability that's why I was if they had retitled it something else that and made it just into kind of a dark <laughs> dark beat <laughs> like love actually question mark would would would, would be a lot. People would be like, oh gosh, right? Maybe, maybe. Is this what maybe that's for love, it is. right? Like, is this how is this how love operates in the world? Is this our conception? Is this the best we've got? Got? So I mean, so- and from a Christmas movie point of view, stick with me on this. I think if this is to be a Christmas movie, we might see it as like Egypt and Rome's role in the birth of Jesus. Okay. They were present in the birth of Jesus story. You have two dueling, aging, insecure empires who won't let people of color speak at all. (laughs) So you've got the Brits with Hugh Grant style blinking nostalgia for days when, uh, when stalking and cheating and groping and making money off of solid gold, you know what, was actually fine. (laughs) And insults are a kind of funny British love language if we just lighten up a bit, because it's Christmas. Um, and then Americans, Americans come across as like sleazy, slutty people who are just more upfront about their issues and don't mind airport security breaches or four ways because we seriously <laughs> have kind of always fetishized England. And so. Well, they're trying to fetishize America, right? Like as yeah. the, as like, hey, remember our cousins who have loose morals and will do anything and will <laughs> just like that. screw anybody? Let's go that. Wouldn't that? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice right now? Wouldn't that right. be a nice iteration of love to enter into our nice stuffy world? Yeah, this should be called Scary Poppins. <laughs> it, so, so, so we, we, we could, we could right. persist in this beat for a while. Sure. There's a lot. I'm really curious, speculatively, what do you two think is behind this movie's place in the zeitgeist. What 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 has captured us in this text? Um, I, I feel like it's in some ways I, I don't hear about it as much over the past few years. Hopefully that's for the good. But for a while there, I felt like I was this this movie had become sort of perennial Christmas staple. What what's going on there? So I, I think I just want to just get the timeline right here, right? This movie comes out in 2003. I think it actually has a good 15-year run. And right around 2016, 17, 18, people start to wise up and realize that this is this has got some real problems. Um, I think it, it'd be it's too easy and facile to sort of say, like, hey, you know, the, the country was wising up to the the sort of with the Me Too movement, to the ways in which the gender politics, not just the like 
rot largely, but like specifically in the workplace in this particular movie is a major, major problem. Um, I think, I think we just got like, I, there, there's something, something has happened in the last five years whereby the culture has looked at this and says, it, it doesn't have the Christmas juice that we thought it did. Yeah. And it didn't get canceled. I, you know, I don't think that there are people who are saying you shouldn't watch Love Actually. Like, this is a problematic movie, though it is. I think it's just like evaporating. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree. But why was it there in the first place? I think we are, we are proud to see ensemble movies when we recognize the people and we love some good soundtracks and you put a Christmas tree next to something and we feel warm inside. And, you know, there's, there's a bit of, of actual pageantry um, and dancing and, you know, that kind of thing is catnip for Christmas. Um, and when it comes to things like, um, friendship and weddings, uh, those things, I mean, we can kind of, we can kind of go into our own head about it. So, you know, we don't, around Christmas movies, I don't think there's very many of them that really do try to get to the heart of things. So it might be on a shelf with a lot of other things and it was playing by their rules and, you know, it was mostly on in the background, you know, and you go, oh, yay, look at all. The, and, and if you go quickly enough, on the surface of different relationships. And there were about like 30 different ones going on. Um, you know, you don't necessarily, maybe it just does, it doesn't ask you to look at it too close. I mean, I think that's, I mean, part of it, right? To your, to your point initially, Matt, like you can, they're all only 20 minutes. Like they're 20 minute vignettes. And if you don't like one, like you'll move to the next one. And so it never really asked much of you. I, but, I think you're onto something, Becca, which is these are real actors. This is not like a, this is a real ensemble. These people know what the hell they're doing. The movie may not, but from top to bottom, these are pros. Yeah. And, and I, I think on this, on this podcast, we don't actually talk a lot about acting or the, or the sort of value that an actor can bring to a movie. Um, we can talk about directors and filmmakers or people who we think make, are making consequential decisions with respect to story and storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is one of those movies where we just kind of trust all these people. Yeah, yeah. Right, like, like I like Hugh Grant. When I, There's never been a time when I saw Hugh Grant show up on the screen and be like, oh, this guy. So like, likeable. He's likable. So likeable. And Colin Firth. Oh my but, God. but then in addition, and Laura Linney, for God's sake, Laura Linney is a, like a, a true actress. She knows what the hell she's doing. Right. Yeah. And so I, and Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman are demigods. Yeah. yeah. And so I think there's never a moment when you're in this movie where the veil of the movie is see-through. It's not a thick movie in any but it never exposes itself as second rate from a production standpoint or from the people who are present in it. So I think we can get really easily confused by looking at this movie and saying like, oh, this movie has to know what it's talking about. Otherwise, why would all of these people be a part of it? Yeah. Yeah, can, I, think, I think that's true. Yeah. Can I give you guys an off the wall thought? Um, 
that prop that most definitely gives this movie a little more credit than it is due. But hear me out. I do this to most movies, um, which is to think like, are they, are they trying to do something here? Um, and I wonder if the movie did have more self-awareness than we thought. Um, I wonder if it's trolling us. Like if it displays itself for exactly what it is, like at the very beginning, Bill Nye, part of the world, um, he, he starts off by saying, this is, you know what, isn't it? And, and his friend says, yeah, but it's solid gold. You know what? You know, like if they're just kind of saying, you know what, you can, you can redux a thing and make a ton of money off of it. And that's the whole theme of this movie is saying, we're going to redo some tropes and we're going to make a ton of money out of it. And you're going to love it. You're actually going to love it. And you're going to hate that you love it. And what if, what if there were that awareness there? You know, I, I, my, my husband completely does not give it that amount of benefit of the doubt, but there's this moment where I wondered why am I so with Emma Thompson when she is completely and utterly betrayed as like a woman of a certain age? Like there was part of me that thought, okay, may, maybe, maybe that is all of us. Maybe that is all of us experiencing this movie, hoping for a mature love, hoping for a mature love and just getting some stupid freaking Joni Mitchell CD and being basically told force that, you know, you need to suck it up, it's Christmas. And then finally getting the, the little jab at the end to be able to serve up this one liner that just sort of nails the entire movie. You haven't just made a fool of yourself. You've made a fool of me. You've made a fool of me. And if they are trying to be meta, if they were trying to say, this is what rom-coms do, y'all. They use women. They're obsessed with sex. We're, we're going to kill them off once and for all. Um, you know, okay. That, that would be a darker movie, like I said. I, I don't know that that can hold, but that, that was one way my mind went with this. No, but I think you're right to recognize that this is a mirror to something, mm -hmm. right? Like... And what's it what's it trying to show us? Yeah. And um, and I I think one of the things that it's showing us is the sort of bankrupt ways in which we talk about love, not just at Christmas time, but in movies in general, right. and and how that that idea of love gets undermined by our obsession with sex or the sort of power dynamics of the world that we confuse for a real love or something like that. And while this is operating in it and whether or not the sort of the authorial intent, so to speak, of, of the movie <laughs> is saying this, I do think that it kind of like exposes all of the ways in which, like, if you think too hard about this movie, it might encourage you to think too hard about like, um, I'll be home for Christmas. Um, as a song, or if you th think too hard about, like, for as you noted earlier, maybe it's cold outside, or uh, about some, of the, or about Home Alone, and and it's that is a Christmas movie, and you start to, it it might encourage you to think about, okay, so what, so what does love actually require, and and what's the strange thing is is that it might push us back into, I think, what the season has offered up traditionally as indications of love. And, 
And hopefully that's that's the strange way in which we get rerouted back by something that is um, ersatz or, or, you know, like a, like a, a, a forgery yeah. of what real love is actually like. Um, that said, there are lots of people who can get lost in the forgery, right? Like, and, and this movie doesn't know what it's talking about with love. I mean, I think the, the, the one vignette that has a moving moment of love, I think, is the platonic love of the, the friends. Yeah. The yeah. rest of them are just like, like, I was, I don't know about you, but this time, and I've seen this movie a hundred times, um, I, I used to think that it was a good movie. Well, I thought it was a bad movie, and then I thought it was a good movie. Because we thought we were thinking too hard about it, but now I'm back to thinking it's a bad movie. Um, and its obsession with sex, its obsession with recognizing, or thinking that sex and physical attraction is the bedrock of love, is is utterly bankrupt. Um, and it's on every page of this whole movie. It's on every frame. And the way that it objectifies women in particular in this movie is signals that love is primarily a set of physical attractions and that there are women who weaponize that with their severe haircuts that are going to like um entice men into some um some other form of love but that's in keeping with the message of love to begin with as it as it's as it's rendered in this movie but no one talks to each other in this movie (laughs) right and it's so crazy because in my experience, you don't the even have bedrock, the same language, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. You the bedrock of love actually is talking to each other. Like physical attraction is an important part of, of romantic love in particular. But love doesn't happen without some measure of communication that exposes a vulnerable part of you. And the very fact that people don't talk to each other in this movie is crazy. I mean, I am so, the Laura Linney piece of this really affected me this week yes. because I I just wanted to get laid. Like I really wanted to have sex with that guy. And I, there's a part of me that's like, go for it. Like go, like go live your life, Laura Linney. Right. And then it gets interrupted. And then there's a part of me that's like, Laura Linney, get out your date book and say, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> you know, because like, I'm sorry your sex got interrupted, right? But like, love reschedules it and figures out a way to be intimate, um, even though life inter- like intrudes any million different ways. Like that is, that's just how it works. And if you talk to each other and you say, hey, I really care for you. And I'd like to, I'd like to pursue this, but maybe at a later date. If Marco is not going to hear that, then like F that guy. He's not worth your love. <laughs> Seriously. Like so so I hear all tomorrow. <laughs> I was I was like I was so, I was so bent out of storage by that. <laughs> so 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 I hear all of this. And I, I really, Becca, I love the idea that this movie is through the the lens of the Bill Nye character, that this movie sees itself as his Christmas song. Yeah. Right, the, the Christmas song is a, is a giveaway. Um, we just slapped Christmas on and it was about love. We slapped Christmas on and it's gonna sell bajillions. I, I think that's, I think there's a charitable read there. The, the other place where Christmas shows up in this film is in the, the Andrew Lincoln 
speech with the cards at the door of Kara Knightley's house where he says, at Christmas, you tell the truth, which um, which is what I've I've been <laughs> ruminating on. Is that is that a real theme? At, is that well, a real Christmas theme? I mean, I've I've got a ten minutes there if you want it, but I th I think the, the 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 there's a conflict there, right, between like Christmas is a facade where we've just that we've just slapped on top of a, okay, a cheap understanding of of romance or love in kind of a pop culture way, or Christmas is this revelatory truth-telling time and you can't quite have it both ways the film clearly or maybe it does want to have it both ways and can't quite hold um i i do think if i were to give this film the benefit of the doubt which i i don't really feel like doing but i think there's <clears throat> i do think there's some interesting gesturing here towards um, the multiple ways in which love happens, where we have, there's a lot of, um, consider this up and against kind of the genre of the life, the, the, the lifetime Hallmark holiday movie, which foregrounds romantic rom-com love as, as the one kind of love that there is and the kind of love that is formed at Christmas. Right, and and the need for there to be some Christmas as a character in and of itself, some mishap with a Christmas tree, you know, that's right. looms large in all of them. I, I do think this film, and, and I think it mostly coalesces even in that very closing moments when you see all of the different greetings at Heathrow. But I do think this film at moments gestures at having a broad understanding of the ways in which we love each other. Um, when it, that it, that it's not just heteronormative couples, although clearly that's what the film spends most of its time on. But we also have, I mean, Laura Linney also loves her brother in a way that is substantial in this film. Liam Neeson loves his um, dead wife and that grief is really yeah. substantial in this film. Yeah. Um, the, even the ickiness of Andrew Lincoln's unrequited love is icky, but it's also a different model of the ways in which we love. That there, there is something here, and, and not to mention Bill Nye and his manager, I, I think there's something I appreciate about taking the kind of heteronormative sense of what Christmas romance ends up being in pop culture and blowing that up just a little bit to yeah. say, look, look at all the ways that, that love can really happen. And I think the giveaway to that is the closing moments at Heathrow where you start to see all these people greeting one another and they are not heteronormative couples, it is Every, it is every shape and color. And there's something there that is meaningful to me as we consider like, what does it mean to talk about love at Christmas? We're talking as Christians first and foremost about God's love for us and the way that that love is meant to inspire us and move us and orient our relationships in the world. And God's love for us doesn't just send us into 
into romance. It sends us into love of one another in all kinds of different shapes and forms. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I think a better version of this movie and a seed in this movie glimpses at that a little bit. And I, and I, I wanna appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And that gets it. There are some moments of real humanity when Laura Linney says, oh, hold on a minute. And then she steps into the stairwell and she goes, yay, 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 yay. Who doesn't love that? When you just, um, I had this movie on with subtitles and so many times it said laughs nervously. Um, there were so many moments of just awkwardness that I think really we can recognize and, and it puts it forward. Um, there was a, the, the moment of the octopus in the car with the prime minister and, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Um, Natalie. Right. Natalie. Natalie, yeah. Whose name? Natalie Natal Christmas. I mean, come on. It's like on the nose. But um, anyway, so the octopus is sitting back there. And for a second, I was like, I am the octopus right now. I'm on this ride with them. I'm just sitting here. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, we're there. Let's get out. <laughs> like it's just it's a short ride it's a short ride towards the pageantry a lot of the characters are there that weren't really in the original Christmas and the grown-ups seem to work really hard on it um and everybody shows up I long for I mean this year with the pandemic oh my gosh the embraces I just felt it yeah. in my gut I just yeah. was like look at that look at that look at that theater Look at that theater. I just longed for it. Um, and I and I love I love the 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 music that goes with those kind of embraces. I mean, yeah, there there was some some parts in the in the emotion and collisions this year that I I noticed how much I I missed it. I missed it. Well, and I think that like Somewhere along the line, someone had a moment and they at our airport, right? And this is yeah. a sort of post 9-11 moment, right? Where you right. can, you everyone has to see each other embrace because you all come out of the airport at the same place, right? There's no longer people waiting at gates and different things like that. Um, and so what was once a diffuse environment is now a sort of like stream or like a fire hose that comes out at a certain point. That's a great and to be able to watch that and recognize that sort of slightly new phenomenon and see that like a real moment of humanity is actually quite brilliant. I, I, I look at that and to frame your movie around like, you wanna know where love happens. You wanna see like a pure extension of what love looks like, like go stand in front of the arrival gate. Like that's a, that's some, there's something there. Like I can get why someone looked at that and said, there's something there. Let's like, let's hang with that. Now, the, how that sort of iterates itself into this movie is is a, a train wreck. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is <laughs> there there was a, someone who noticed that love is present in that moment, and it frames on both ends of the movie that that is a pure expression of love. And I think they're right. Mm -hmm. And I think this year has given me a, even a deeper understanding of how right that is like you said, because of the lack of embrace, because of the lack of travel, because of the lack of that, of that distance. Like I, love has taken on new iterations for my family this, this year, but I do miss the coming home. Yeah, yeah. Right, like, like the coming home moment 
is a, a really important human moment. And this, this, and I think that's like, that's an incarnational thing, right? If we're, if we're going to hang out in Christmas, like to, to recognize the arrival of Christ as an extension of love, this, this movie has something to say about Christmas. The problem is, is that it doesn't ever fully realize what that arrival looks like in everyday lives around London. Right. I mean, and I think like it, I, I think this movie, we are, there's like, we're in the age of IP. So like, I don't know why they don't remake this movie. Like, yeah. Like, I think you could, and I think you could, could like diversify it a lot. And okay. I think you could like still frame it around that. And you could still have a prime minister character and love. American president uh, who said you know, some things, yeah. You could, you could find the types, but re, yeah, but reroute them into, mm. I think a deeper expression. That, that's built off of what was, I think, the germ of, of a pretty good idea. Yeah, it, the premise it was speaking to was the post 9-11 concern in the world that that hatred was gonna win the day, right? And it's, it's trying to say it doesn't really, none of the calls made on the planes following 9-11 were words of hatred. Um, and we're kind of in that moment again. We're wondering like, is division and separation and isolation the final word here? And wow, if they did go to a depiction of America or London that didn't look like a kind of, you know, fully Caucasian ethno state, <laughs> which is what they did in that film, uh, if it were different now, um, I mean, just the embrace is walking into someone's house and having it packed with people for Christmas. Um, if Jamie didn't leave right away, <laughs> I hate Uncle Jamie. I hate Uncle Jamie. Like, <laughs> if Uncle Jamie was like, you know what, I'm going to stay. I'm I'll stay. send her a letter. I'll send her a text. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. I think we really do need to work on our language skills a little bit, and we're going to Zoom. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk over Zoom. Yeah, and I and you know what? I did save that that novel on several different formats, so it didn't have to go flying into the lake. And yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of ways that this movie. Um, it tugged on our heartstrings. And if it were to tug in, in a direction of some maturity, um, given how 20 years later, uh, we're still, and you know, maybe it's a human question. We're always asking that question. Um, and it, it's a very Christmassy question. Like, d does the little baby with the innocence win? And in what way? <laughs> like, um, yeah, it gets real theological real, real quick. If you start thinking, well, yeah, the baby in Christmas grew up and and went to a cross and was not, you know, the, it was not the, the Heathrow embrace, um, except for on the large Easter scale, which means like forgiveness and hanging in there and actually having real conversations. Um, and, it, and maybe Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman stay together and we get to hear about how much they worked through. Yeah, that there's a, a moment of reconciliation. Yeah, I gotta tell you, when I was um, watching the end of this movie and the Heathrow sequence, which by the way makes no narrative sense, why have all these characters all come into the Heathrow at the same time? Why is the prime minister <laughs> flying commercial? There's, I have questions, but, <clears throat> and I was done with the movie and also watching all the people embrace as they came off the plane. Um, what I thought about was standing in the narthex in my congregation oh gosh and shaking hands and giving hugs yeah and um how much i miss that 
Oh my gosh, I'm with How much you. I miss that stream of love. Mm -hmm. um, and this stupid ass movie had me in tears. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm um, with you. <laughs> so we should not talk about it. We should go talk about preaching instead. All right, let's do it. I think that's before we all get weepy over a movie that we all recognize is truly terrible. Um, <laughs> Before we move on to feel it in our fingers, <laughs> feel it in our toes. <laughs> uh, before we move to preaching, uh, we want to talk about how grateful we are with our partnership for with the Christian Century. I want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Matt, there's a really interesting article uh, about a grandmother trying to teach Greek to her eight-year-old grandson. Yeah, I know some of those people. <laughs> I actually, I, it's really, it's so sweet. And, um, and the, the kicker is really good. It, it, it ends really well. And I, I really appreciated that. So um, go check out that out. Matt's mom wrote it about, about his son. Um, but it's, um, it was, it was a, a bright spot of hope when I read it. And, uh, which I, I really appreciate. If if you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century Sunday Morning Matinee, listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentry.org/podcast-offer. All right, Matt. All right, Adam, Becca, let's talk about preaching. The text for this upcoming lectionary is a year B, December 20th, Advent 4. We've got the prophet Nathan describing David's reign of power and peace. We have the Magnificat or the Annunciation or, you know, for the real deep cut, someone could preach on the close of Romans. Uh, I'm curious to each of you, does love actually stir any thoughts for you as you consider these preaching texts? So I have, I have two, two things that I think are, um, are worth considering here. Um, the first is the ways in which longing sort of operates in our body and how that that the longing of our hearts needs some sort of some truly physical representations and I think what what love actually does is at least it recognizes that the longings that we have in our lives actually aren't they're not intellectual they're they're bodied that, that, that we feel them in our body I think they mistake this for some sort of like erotic urge of some sort, like it's all about sex or it's all about the sort of need for physical intimacy. Um, and so the innuendo and the way that this movie talks about sex is crazy, but it does recognize that those bodies, that, that our bodies feel things and they, they have a longing that they, that they are trying to sort of live into the world. And that it's, um, and I think that that's present in the, in the Magnificat as you, as we understand it, it's that like, it's not just that we all understand yeah. It's not just that we sort of come to a realization of the revelation that is arriving. It's, um, it's that things happen, bodies are moved because of this to make way for um, a, a reign of, uh, of, of grace, a reign of, uh, of peace. And, and that when we have bodied longings, it, it, we ought to pay attention to the ways in which um, they have to find a physical manifestation in the world. Yeah. Um, not just a, a, a intellectual understanding or even an emotional understanding, but an actually physical one. And so I think about that a lot. Um, the other thing that I would lift up is that the Annunciation is, um, is a beautiful 
piece of scripture. And there is this sort of moment of encounter that Mary has. I think it's worth considering how that moment of encounter then continually and consistently leads to intimate community. Um, that it is, though the, the text doesn't mention this, the immediate reaction of Mary upon meeting this angel is to go and seek out the company of Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, and if, as we've noted, the platonic friendship love of love actually is one of the core hearts of it. It's worth considering what that platonic love of Elizabeth um, and Mary represents in the time of, of, of Advent and of Christmas, because I think it's really important, especially in the arc of Mary, because this is the first encounter that Mary has with God. And it is, um, it is God's, that the spirit has come over her and that she births this child is not the last time that she has an, an, a, like a, a moment of enunciation or she has an encounter with the spirit. Um, it might be worth considering as, um, as you think about what the consequence of the Annunciation is and what the consequence of Mary bearing the child is. Mm -hmm. um, the, in, within Luke's gospel, the, the last, or the Luke's story, with the last time we meet Mary is at Pentecost. And I think that there is a nice mm -hmm. symmetry there with respect to how the spirit is present in Mary's birthing, so to speak community of reconciliation of the things that will lead back to true relationships that bind people together in love. And so I, I would play around with Mary um, and how the, this encounter with God actually spurs her into this, gener this, the, the, this generative love that builds community in, in a really powerful way. So that's, that's something that I've been playing around with. What about you all? If I were to teach on this one, I, I think I would go with the role of of music as a as a way that kind of surprisingly uh, gets to places where our words don't. So if Luke stops the narrative and Mary steps into singing the Magnificat and magnifies the Lord, uh, and you get, I mean, you could go super uh, into like transmission history about how that hymn was probably even older than the narrative around it kind of like, you know, all you need is love or love is all around us. Communities know these songs and when they come out in a fresh way and they burst up like, uh, you know, trombones or trumpets or a choir song singing around a particular person, it is to communicate um, the kind of magnification that's going on in that text that, that uh, the narrative can't hold by itself. And I would probably make a passing reference to the opening wedding to say, you know, just imagine a surprising outburst of music. Uh, that is what the Magnificat does, both stylistically, but also emotionally uh, for Luke. I think we're all bouncing around some similar beats here. I mean, I, yeah. I, I actually think there are ways of preaching on this film. Mm -hmm. um, it probably, for me, it would it would not be something to lift up, but something to sort of react against. Um, but I, I think there may be ways to do both of them. I, I think about, I mean, the very simple idea that at Christmas we tell the truth. What is the Magnificat if, if it's not God through Mary speaking something true? That there is this revelatory thing. I I, I do think that. Um, 
a, a way of reacting against love actually on this particular Sunday with these texts. And it is the traditional love Sunday of the four Advent Sundays um, would, would be to, to kind of unpack what is, what is God's love for us and how is it different than some of the superficiality that we yeah, see yeah. in this text? I mean, even in the Samuel text, you, we sing of God's steadfast love. There's something about the steadfastness there that I think is worth setting in contrast mm -hmm. to the regular parade of kind of superficial and sentimental love stories that run through our pop mm -hmm. culture yeah. consciousness at Christmas. Yeah. And to say God's love... Um, inspires us into romance but it also inspires us into community and it also inspires us into service and it inspires us into the the overturning of the world that mary sings about that that love has power and steadfastness and valence to it that is so much bigger than um and then you know am i going to get a girlfriend in time for christmas eve um right. and i and i think there's something there that could be spoken from the pulpit um, mm -hmm. on, on that Sunday. Uh, whether this movie has enough kind of pop culture traction to be able to reference it without needing to spend a bunch of time in it, I don't know. But I, I think there's something that, that could be homiletically inspirational there. And if you took their model, which is a bunch of vignettes, and then you went to your own congregation and said, you know, let's think about you know, Esther and Tracy, who, you know, Esther is alone in her apartment and Tracy calls her every single night. Um, and what about, you know, this group of friends who's met on Zoom every week? And what about those neighbors who brought so-and-so's paper up to their door? Uh, and you give the, the, the specifics and you said, love is so specific. It's never in general. It's always so specific. Uh, and then when you were talking about the airport scene, there was part of me that thought, oh my gosh, maybe the longing that this movie does not quite get to because it cannot is the idea of being so pursued that you would be chased down just for love to come to you. And is that what Christmas is? Like that God incarnate would chase us down and find us. And by whatever chance in your life you wound up there, I mean, whoa, that, that's where I think yeah. it, this movie could not handle the kind of stuff it was flirting with. Right, but, right. Uh, a church can, church can yeah. say. Well, and I think and, so. and both sides of that, right? That you are, chased, you are chased through the airport and also when you get off the plane. Yeah. That God is there in the faces of all of these people. All of these people. As that are messy. so excited to see you no matter what language you speak, right. no matter how complex their lives are or mm -hmm. what sin you have mm -hmm. to overcome in the long-term, like it is it is possible. I can't well, believe I, I like this movie more than I did an hour and a half ago. <laughs> but, but I think that this is where like, our, like to both of your points, Matt, yours earlier and Becca's yours just now, like the representation of this movie does have a model to share, right? Which is, um, Which is why the remake like is such the, a good idea. The, the, the church candle lighting is the room for your families with young kids. 
and they all get to step up and they all get to say something and then they light the candle and they get to go and sit down. But what if that's also the opportunity to, to affirm the families that are made by choice, mm-hmm. to have two best friends in the, in the congregation yeah. who've been best friends for 35 years and have been going to that church for a really long time. What if they get to do the candle lighting together, right? Like how do we ourselves in the life of our communities lift up the various models of love that are available to folks, recognizing that we do ourselves a disservice in understanding a God who we proclaim is love when we have a narrow vision of love as expressed in the life of the community. Um, and how do we continue to, in our liturgies and in our preaching, but also in, in the life of the community, show that this love comes from a variety of, comes in a variety of different forms and fashions. Um, and to that, to, to the point of like the ways in which God is showing up in love, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a room to talk about sacrifice here too, which is kind of absent in this movie. <laughs> like, but love requires a degree of sacrifice um, that to make room in yourself or somebody else has a moment of kenosis mm. that is exactly how the incarnation operates that that god has to make room in god's self to become human to to empty god's self in order to take on this other thing and how how is our love simultaneously making room for others and their needs you know like like marco if you if if you want to be in for the long haul like you have to make room not only for laura lenny but for her brother like right. that's just how it works. That's how love works. And you may not want that, but don't call it love. Yeah. Yeah. It, in, in the next version of love, actually, Marco has given Laura Lenny some time to rest and he's gone and uh, formed a relationship with the brother and they've become friends and she, some of that caregiving load is shared uh, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and they both have great sex, like, and just like, and he still has awesome abs, right? Like, I, and I think, like, like, but because I think this movie wants to get at, like, oh, this part is really important, and it can be, but it's made more important by the sacrifice that you give to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think that there's, there's something there with that, that enunciation, because there's a sacrifice that Mary's making too, that we don't, we don't often talk about in the sort of consent that she provides. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, you think, could you could use this movie to say, you know, some people get just a passing read of Christmas from Christians, and it rings as problematic to them as maybe this movie does to us. Like if we don't teach the full narrative of yeah. Jesus, well all you get is a bunch of of strange characters doing problematic things, um, and being obsessed with sex. Like, <laughs> yeah, are are we doing? Christmas any better service than just like a run of Hallmark cards, which feels like what this movie is too. You know, I think that's a that's a, a critical question. I think we've run out on this one, and I so appreciate Becca you spending some time uh, ringing through this movie with us. Thank you for being with us, and I hope that you will come back and hang out with us again real soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Top Gun too. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> You better the not already out. We'll do a mini pod where we just watch the trailer together. We won't invite Matt. That's fine. I, you can invite me. I won't come. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Becca. Thanks.
All right, Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Oh, man, so many things. I've watched a lot of interesting good stuff and I want to talk about all of it. But instead, um, I want to talk about uh, Warner Brothers' decision to um, put their whole catalog, upcoming catalog slate for 2021 uh, direct to digital streaming through HBO Max. Um, this is a, a huge story uh, that is obviously really difficult because of the, the nature of the industry right now under COVID and so many creators and um, industry workers who need to get paid and need to have um, need to have work and need for that pipeline to continue moving and not just be blocked. Uh, on the other hand, we've had um, directors, some of the ones you might anticipate, the sort of Chris Nolans of the world who are um, deeply lamenting the loss of the theatrical experience. Uh, and and I, I am sharing in that lament. I am worried about movie theaters. And what I hear, um, what I hear from Nolan and from the artists is the, the incalculable loss of seeing a film on a large screen, seeing it in the way that a director would have imagined and intended it to be seen in its highest fidelity with its best sound, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I wanna name that I think there's another loss here that we're not talking about enough. Um, and, and I think it's a loss that churches should be tuned into uh, because theaters are a transgressive space. Uh, the The earliest history of movie theaters in this country is is as a place where people could mix who were not empowered to mix in other circumstances. There was considerable anxiety in the first couple of decades of the of the 20th century about young women going to movie theaters by themselves and what might happen to them. The kinds of riffraff that would show up. The the mm. The, um, that theaters were um, uh, a dangerous place because people mixed and because it gathered from different societal strata and it put people into a common space. It also put them into a common space where in sort of the language of later film theorists, they could collectively have a dream experience or an imaginative experience of seeing this projected world together. And that is dangerous. That imagines a vision of a body politic of a community that, uh, that doesn't respect all of the sort of normal things that divide us. And I am deeply lamenting the loss of that if we only watch movies in our own homes, with our own families, in our own strata, then we can only have that dream experience as individuals and not as a gathered people. I don't think Twitter quite counts. So I, I just wanna name that I think that there's something broader to lament about theaters and I, and I think it's something that churches at their very best uh, need to also incorporate into their understanding of, of who they can be. Because of course, a church at its very best 
should also be a transgressive space where people gather who aren't empowered to gather in other ways. And so that's, that's what I'm lamenting and lingering with right now, Adam. And I want I want to hear from you. What's yeah, what's no, I, I, well, I've, and let me just affirm what you've said. I, I think so. I, I think that it is film over the last hundred years has been uh, the, the most powerful populist medium of our country. Um, and in part because of access, because of the ways in which um, from the poor to the rich, if you wanted to see something, you had to go to the theater, right? And it was one of those places like where everyone had to sort of sit next to each other. I yeah. mean, it's one of the very few places. There aren't very many. I mean, I think like, it's like movie theaters in Disneyland, right? Like, yeah. like it's um, where the ultra rich and, uh, uh, and the ultra poor get more or less the same experience. Um, and that is, I think, really important culturally for the fabric of this place that that we call the United States. Truly, I mean, in other places too, I suppose. But I, you know, I can't I can't speak to the way that their culture absorbs this medium. But I think in our particular culture, it's really important. And um, and I, I don't. While this is a major problem financially from a business standpoint for theaters. Um, I don't think it has to necessarily compromise the desire that human beings have to have that experience together. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I likewise, I don't, I don't think I will see less movies in the theater now because of this, if that makes any sense. No, I, I, I don't, I, I, I am excited to return, um, ex <laughs> yeah. eager, eager for it. And I'm just, um, want everything to hold on long enough for that to happen in, in, I mean, in big and, meaningful ways. And the crazy thing is, is like, I've got a three-year-old and back in February of last year, I knew that he would be in preschool this year and I was waiting for it. Cause like Friday, like Friday at 10 AM, I can go see movies now. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, but I can't <laughs> obviously, but, but that was one of the things that I was looking forward to most because I take my day off and the kids are in school and I can go and do something like that. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I want to talk about, I, I have just a couple of just random things that I want to say. Um, uh, the first is, is that there's a, there's the documentary of the Bee Gees that's coming out tomorrow on HBO. I just, um, a friend of mine made it. Oh, it's, cool. um, it's really good. And I think it helps us like it helps us recapture not just like what 70s music was, but why the Bee Gees are as like a sort of songwriting force is really important. But it's also about brothers and anything that's about brothers, like actually really. Um, it tugs at my heart and like like family together it's somehow like burrows really deep into me and so i you know if it does for you too i would encourage you to check it out the other thing that i want to lift up is a little bit associated to you your um uh your post matt is that um, regional theaters make their money by holding a christmas carol every um every yeah. year um it is the thing that allows them to put on plays and now the entertainment industry, especially the live entertainment industry over the last year is cratering in such a major way. But there is opportunity 
for some live streamed Christmas carols that I would encourage people to go and participate in. Um, they make good gifts. So send gifts to people with them and you're doing a good thing because you're supporting these regional theaters as they try and weather a time where they can't have people in their building and they're losing money at a time when they make their budget off yeah. of one show. And this somehow thrown into our, our cultural fabric and the business practices of live theater. But A Christmas Carol for regional theaters in particular is vital, vital, vital. So pick a regional theater in the place that you live and send the money and watch whatever Christmas Carol they have Zooming or live streaming or something like that because I think it's really important for those theaters. Um, and then finally, like lately my family has just been, in order to get out of the house, we just drive around and look at Christmas lights. And I was, I've been sort of moved by how lovely this is. And the wonder of children who are like, oh, that's awesome, or that's a good one, or like his has just been a source of hope in a time of longing. Um, it is like kind of the perfect socially distant activity. Um, and um, and there's a, this dude in, in my, not far from where I live, made an app for my, like the suburbs of Philadelphia, where you can all go find the best Christmas lights. And now there's like maps and I'm just, um, I'm just grateful that even in a time like this, there's something like where you can just drive around and see something novel in a world that I've seen a million times. And so, um, I would encourage that. I mean, even if like, just drive around and look at, look at lights on people's homes, it, it's, it's a reminder that people live there, I think is maybe the thing that's mm. true. Um, and, and I think in a time when we're, we feel divided or there's a lot of acrimony in the world, like being reminded that we have neighbors is really important to figuring out how to love our neighbors. So I think that's, that's what I got. It's beautiful. All right, well, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you uh, like this show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Christmas Lobster. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, man.